bless you, uh, Brother Ron, for sharing in God's word uh, for us today. And I would invite you to uh, prayer uh, this morning as we consider God's word together. Lord, it is important that uh, we have hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone. It is important that we open rather than close our minds. It is important that we understand and seek the power that you desire to give to your children and to your church. And so we pray now that uh, your word might equip us and strengthen us, Lord God, to walk with you and to carry out your mission and purposes, Lord, in this life for the benefit of others whom you call us to serve. In your precious name we pray and ask, and all the people of God said, the mighty, amen. So the power that you and I possess, today's message moves us away from the bulrushes along the banks of the Nile River, from the midwives who participated in the deliverance of Moses, which was the first message within uh, this series of sermons. Um, that was their move, the midwives, to help in the rescue of Moses. Away from Naomi and Ruth, who are leaving Moab for a better life back in Bethlehem, we, we leave Naomi and Ruth, and we remember that it was Ruth's move to stay together with her mother-in-law, Naomi. No less, we also discover another story of redemption that takes place outside of the Holy Land. And this time, we travel not 200 years into the future, as we did from Moses to Ruth, but 700 years into the future to the 5th century BC. And we arrive at the ancient Persian Empire, where we encounter the great King Xerxes, who was the fourth emperor or fourth great king of the Persian Empire. And his reign is very, very well attested to in non-biblical documents and source material. Well, this area of Persia is what is today modern-day Iran. And um, although the present history of Iran is now Islamic, the nation of Iran has very, very little to do in its history with ancient Persia, perhaps other than some uh, archaeological sites and so on. But the culture is completely different. And so... Uh, like the Moabites, uh, who love to practice human sacrifice to their god, Chemosh, the Persian people, well, they were no less cruel. And so their preferred way of sacrificing other people was, get this, to bury them alive. That's what they thought would be pleasing to their gods. In fact, the the, the Persian army once came into uh, a city that they had conquered, and they discovered that the name of that uh, city was called the Nine Rivers. And so uh, the Persians thought it would be a wonderful idea if they took nine men, nine women, and nine children and buried them all alive as a way to please their gods. And so when we hear stories like that, we reflect and we say how repugnant religion, either ancient or modern, can be. 
It is into the glory of this vast and accomplished empire, the Persians, that the story of Queen Esther emerges, for she was imposed upon by God, perhaps reluctantly, to make her move. So get the fact that God's will for us is never convenient and is often an imposition upon us. And get the fact that God understands our reluctance but never accepts our reluctance as an excuse for opting out of his will. He didn't do that for Moses, even though when God called Moses, he had all kinds of protestations and excuses. He didn't do it for Naomi. He didn't do it for Esther. And neither will he accept all of our reluctance or excuses from you and I. So far, all three biblical accounts uh, that we have encountered in this sermon series, well, they've occurred outside of the promised land. We've had uh, Egypt with Moses and Moab with Ruth and Naomi, and now this story of Esther takes place in Persia. And, they, and these are all biblical accounts of how God called upon us to live out our faith on the fringes, if you will. And it is this mission in the margins and on the edges of society that Jesus similarly embraced. I mean, didn't Jesus heal the demon-possessed man running wild on the fringe outside of his town there in Luke chapter 8? Didn't Jesus speak truth into the life of the woman at the well with the fringe belief that her religion, her Samaritan faith, would save her? Didn't Jesus heal the woman that was taken in adultery who lived her life constantly on the fringe of failed relationships as we see in John chapter 8? And when you're practicing your faith on the fringes, it's easy to be misunderstood, isn't it? I mean, when um, we, uh, we turn back to, to Great Britain, Janet and I, in the, uh, at, at the millennium in the year 2000, uh, I was... Uh, there as a pastor and as a missionary, and I would introduce myself to either my flock or people in the community as uh, Pastor Daniel. And, and the locals would say, Pasta Daniel? And I would say, no, not Pasta Daniel, Pastor Daniel. That's what we just said, Pasta Daniel. And so from then on, um, I received the moniker, the nickname, Pasta Daniel. You see, so... Uh, I was rather misunderstood in that instance. Uh, I believe myself to be uh, a pastor. They believe me to be a bowl of spaghetti, I suppose, you know. But whether we are at home or on the fringe practicing our faith, it's always our move to make living out our faith a priority, no matter where you are. For there's so much about this, especially that's appropriate for the New Year's, that asks us, to, to step out and to follow our gut instincts, to take a chance and to, to leave, just like Naomi and Ruth did, all the safe places behind us. Indeed, if the first century church, think about them for a moment, believed in preserving their own personal safety and security, well, the gospel never would have been preached. And so we are the recipients, my brothers and sisters, of that very first church community 
stepping out, extending themselves beyond their comfort zones. You see, if we don't do that, then our faith just becomes something that is a, a, a polite conversation piece, if you will, shared around coffee tables, but never entering into the slums of Calcutta or uh, the drug lord dens of Mexico City or the heroin-infested suburbs of Parkersburg, West Virginia. In 2016, five states were identified with having the highest rates of drug overdose within the nation, and they were, in 2016, just a couple years ago, not too long ago, first was West Virginia. Uh, second was um, ours truly, the state of Ohio, third was New Hampshire, and then followed by Pennsylvania, and then uh, lastly rounded out that uh, uh, list with uh, Kentucky. And we have, as Mother Teresa once said, we have drugs for people, the right kind of drugs, uh, for uh, those with diseases like leprosy, Mother Teresa was to say, but she said, these drugs do not treat the main problem, the disease, Mother Teresa said, of being unwanted. And that's what my sisters are here to hope to provide people a sense of being wanted. The sick and the poor suffer even more from rejection than they do from material want. Loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted, Mother Teresa says, is the worst kind of poverty that there can be. I mean, who but Mother Teresa, think about it, is talking about the fact that the cause of the opioid epidemic might have more to do with people feeling lonely and unwanted than any other cause. Wow. And so, I mean, if the Jewish midwives had obeyed Pharaoh's orders and they played it safe, not wanting to get into any trouble with Pharaoh, well, Moses never would have been born. And Ruth, what about her? Safety and security were to be found back in Moab with her own people, not trundling through the wilderness with her mother-in-law to be situated with a bunch of people that she didn't know. And so her very risky move to be with Naomi was a statement of her togetherness, wanting to be with her forever. And in today's text, we find that there are four main players. As I introduced him, there is King Xerxes. Uh, he is the king of kings of Persia. There is uh, a gentleman called Haman. He is second in command to King Xerxes. And then there is Mordecai. And then there is Queen Esther. Queen Esther being Mordecai's niece. Now, the curious thing about these four people is that they all play off of each other. You see, Haman, who is second in charge to King Xerxes, he's offended that Mordecai, who is a Jew, will not bow down to him when Mordecai, excuse me, when Haman is strutting himself through the streets. Mordecai will not bow. 
this then leads to Haman's plot, because he's so angry by the fact that Mordecai won't bow down to him as a Jew. He wants to take it out on all of the Jews. So Haman comes up with this brilliant idea of ethnically cleansing Persia of all resident Jewish populations. And I'm talking women and children along with the men. And this neat little habit of rounding up everyone who's different from us is still being practiced 2,500 years later. Hitler, Stalin, Marshall, Tito, Pol Pot in Cambodia, and the Houthis of Rwanda have all done it. Ethnically cleansed other people that they thought were their enemies. And so from April to July, April, May, June, July, the Houthis in Rwanda ethnically cleansed 800,000 people in just three or four months out of their country. And we too, we have a, a very dirty, untidy history in wanting to remove American Indians from their tribal lands, from their homes. It's interesting to me when, when we drive back up to uh, New York to visit with my mom and dad, as you're driving along the Interstate 90, you enter a very uh, small part of what is the Seneca Indian Tribal Nation. Um, and, and, and they have their own laws uh, apart from the state of New York, and so there's a certain part of the throughway that belongs to them. And I, and I always chuckle and laugh a little bit to myself because as you're driving through that little section of the interstate, there's a sign on the side of the road and it's posted there by the Seneca Indians and it says, the United States government owes us $80 million. They better pay up or something to that effect. But I'm sorry, Senecas, because I think you're gonna be waiting a very, very, very long time to see a penny of that $80 million. And so the moral dilemma that is before Queen Esther and put so eloquently by Edmund Burke is, what Edmund Burke says is the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil, and you've heard this statement before, is for good people to do nothing, right? Good people to do nothing. So what is Queen Esther to do in light of the a, a, a looming annihilation of all of her people, her fellow uh, Jews, the Hebrew people. Will she recognize the power that she possesses or will she hit the snooze bar, roll over and say, it's somebody else's problem, let somebody else deal with it, but I ain't going there. And so the saying is true. To escape criticism, if you want to escape criticism, do nothing. Say nothing and be nothing. That's a surefire way to escape criticism. As I said, discovering the power that you possess is often worked out uh, through the relationships, whether good or bad, that we have with others. For Mordecai, the Jew in today's narrative, was no friend of wicked Haman, and neither was Queen Esther. She couldn't stand Haman either. But it is precisely through Haman's wickedness and his plot to annihilate all of the Jews and Mordecai's resistance to Haman's wickedness that Esther is presented with making her move for God. 
And her move, as I shared with the children this morning, was either to speak up or to remain silent. To speak for God or to do nothing. That, my friends, is also the choice that is before us as the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, as we learn from the book of Esther, unfavorable circumstances and relationships created by those who don't know God give rise for you to make your move for God. Yes, just like this small country church did. The story is told about this church where the pastor called for a special meeting of the congregation to uh, approve the purchase of a brand new chandelier, shimmering and reflecting beautiful light into uh, their worship space. And after some discussion, pro and con, an old farmer stood up and said, well, buying a new chandelier may seem like a good idea to you, but I'm against it for three reasons. And first of all, it's too expensive and we can't afford one. Second, there ain't anybody around here that knows how to play one. And third, what this church really needs is a new light fixture. <laughs> it's coming. It'll, 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 it'll come. See, I, I had a, an elder, uh, a good friend back in England by the name of Dennis, and Dennis has passed on. And Dennis would always remind him, he would always say, Daniel, the power that is behind you is always greater than the obstacles that are in front of you. Every time I get together with Dennis, he would always say that to me. And I, I took encouragement from that, you see. And where did Dennis learn this lesson? I venture to say he learned it right out of the book of Esther. And this power Esther came to learn had been given to her by God. She just needed to step out and embrace her faith that was calling her out to the fringe. Where was that fringe? Right in the center court of the great King Xerxes. She knew that if she stepped into that court and he did not extend his golden scepter to her, well, she would have been taken away in a body bag. Yes? And it's clear we are not to use the power that God gives to us for our own ends, but we are to use that power as Esther once did for the salvation of others. When I was pastoring down in Newport, uh, uh, we participated in a ministry down there that was called uh, WizKids. Yeah, it was part of the work of uh, City Gospel Mission. And WizKids was all about reaching uh, neighborhood elementary school children that were uh, underprivileged, uh, they were challenged in so many ways um, in their homes, and they struggled to, to read. And so we would gather them up and, and have them there in the church, and we would teach them to read. And, uh, Pastor Doug Dunlap from City Gospel Mission was one of our advisors. He said this, and this phrase has always stayed with me. He said, if you can teach a child to read, then they can find the Redeemer. And I thought that that was absolutely genius. You see, it was our move to take the initiative with those kids there within the city of Newport and take them under our wing and not only teach them how to read, 
but to share with them our faith, which was part of the intention, the purposeful intention of WizKids. You see, it's, it's always our move. God will be expecting you and I to use the Holy Spirit power that we possess that was given to the church back in Acts chapter 2 to make our move, to make your move, to ensure serenity and calm within your life? Absolutely not. To make your move, often at great personal peril, to bring about the salvation of others. You see, I, I have experienced this firsthand in a couple of different ways. When I was first considering entering the ministry, I had a mentor by the name of Dr. Hoffman. He was a Lutheran pastor, and I would go and visit Dr. Hoffman, and I would sit there across from his desk, and, and so we would have these conversations about ministry, and he said, uh, Daniel, he says, see that portrait, uh, that, that photograph that's behind me on the wall here? And I say, yes, Dr. Hoffman. And there was probably about 25, 30 people within that uh, portrait. And he said, well, well, these are all my classmates from seminary that I graduated with. And he said, you want to know how many of those individuals that are in that picture, in that photograph, are now still presently in ministry? And I'm shrugging my shoulders. Gee, I, I don't know, Dr. Hoffman. And he said, five. Five out of the 25 or 30, you see? And I had another pastor who participated in my training who once said to me, Daniel, remember that ministry is a dangerous thing. I said, what? What are you talking about ministry being a dangerous thing? But she was right, and she was wrong. Because it's not just because a, 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 a pastor, you see, that enters ministry, that that can be a dangerous thing. But being a Christian can be a dangerous thing in this, what I have called from this pulpit, the new dark age, or what C.S. Lewis has called as far back as 1939, what he called the new paganism that we find ourselves in. The new paganism can be a very dangerous thing, you see. And over 25 years of ministry, Reaching out to those on the fringe, well, it has cost me. And sometimes it has cost me dearly. I have been ridiculed, and I have been misunderstood, and I have been judged, oftentimes harshly. I have had my character maligned beyond just calling me coxcomb. And I have had friends in the church betray me, walk away from me completely out of my life, becoming, in some instances, my sworn enemy. Yeah? And my heart has been broken, and that also, I can speak for Janet, for my wife, and the work of Christ that I have undertaken has literally been turned upside down. I have been lonely, I have been desperate, I have been afraid, and the object of the anger, resentment, scorn, and cold shoulder of others, some have even spat in front of me as I walk down the sidewalk, and some have even intentionally showed me more cleavage than I desired to see. And I have been greeted with grunts, oh, you again, oh, oh. Intentionally shunned and abandoned by those who promised to stand shoulder to shoulder with me. Through that, 
Bob Gallup lying in his hospice bed, and his wife called me from Rochester, New York, and he had a, a debilitating disease. Bob died in his 50s. Jackie called me, and she said, Pastor Richard, I want you to know Bob's last words on his face were, Pastor Daniel, I could hardly even speak, but those were his last words. And so the book of James says, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and it shows its true colors. Yeah? Now, maybe a strange definition of success, but suffering, personal, you and I, is a sign that God's will is being done. Yeah? Doesn't Jesus say in John chapter 15, remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what they're going to do to you? And he ain't just talking about me in my pastoral office. Jesus is talking about you and all of us that are here today. They're going to persecute you. That's what's going to happen. If as Christians we never suffer or are not even remotely inconvenienced for our faith, surely it is a sign that God is dead within us. Gotta feel the sting, and if not the sting, maybe even just a little pinch. To know that the Lord's alive and well and able to see it's not your fault, it's not my fault, it's His fault. When Queen Esther entered the mighty King Xerxes' court and approached his powerful throne, begging for the lives of the Jewish people, she crossed the line. That is our takeaway. From the text of the book of Esther, she crossed the line. She made her move. And as a result, all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire were saved because one person was willing to stand up, to speak, and to step across that line. Praise God. And so as Mordecai, Esther's uncle, once said to his niece, don't think because you're hanging out there in the king's palace that you're going to be saved. Might be this time, and for this reason, and for this purpose, that God has raised you up and put you in that place so that you could speak and cross that line and stand up for God, and that our people might be saved. And so, my friends, let us exercise the power that we possess as Esther once did. May we remember that it is always. Sunday message today. Uh, we share together now in our parting hymn this morning.